Okay, now we're going. We have a lot of relationships in our lives. And because we live in a fallen world, um, the effects of that fallen world are, are borne out on our relationships that we have. Whether it's within our family or whether it's within uh, any other relationship we have, we, we bear the effects of a fallen world that we live in. And um, so we need to understand how to relate to one another well within the context of a fallen world and the relationships that bear the, the, um, the effects of that. And so we find ourselves at various times in relationship with those who are unruly. We find ourselves at various times in relationship with those who are faint-hearted and with those who are weak. And we find ourselves having to be patient with all of them. And um, it's going to be very helpful if we know um, how to identify those and we know what one is when we see one and um, what it means to, to bear with them the way Scripture tells us to do that. So let's read the passage together. And when we do that, we'll, we'll have a good idea of what it is that we're looking at here. Okay? So, but before we read the passage, let's talk about the context that we're dealing with here. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. And he's writing from Corinth. And he first came into the church at Thessalonica when it was not yet a church on his second missionary journey. And I don't have the map behind me with Scott's fun pointer, but it's on his second missionary journey. This is in modern-day Greece, and uh, the city of Thessalonica is still there today. Um, Paul shows up there. He got there from Philippi, where there was a lot of persecution and trouble. Um, he left Philippi and found himself in Thessalonica. He really didn't stay there very long. He only stayed three weeks. And after he stayed for three weeks, there was a great deal of persecution that arose out of the church that had formed because of Paul's uh, ministry there. So Paul and Silas and Timothy head down to Athens and Corinth. And after some time, Paul uh, is very concerned about how they're doing there. So he sends Timothy back to them to find out how it is that they're doing because he's very, very concerned for them. And Timothy returns to Paul when Paul is down in Corinth with a good report from the church in Thessalonica that their testimony and the evidence of their testimony had gone out from that place into the Mediterranean world. And, and many people knew about their faith and how they were doing um, so that's the context here. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look first uh, briefly at Paul's thoughts for the church in Thessalonica. And then we're going to look at Paul's instructions to them in the church. And then we'll hone in on the, the instruction in particular that's in front of us today. So um, Paul has three general thoughts for them in the first three chapters. Uh, the first is a joy over the fruit of their salvation. He was extremely concerned about how they were doing. And so when you read 1 Thessalonians 1, you see that Paul talks about how it is that he came to them and the kind of man that he proved to be as he was coming to them. And he, find, he talks about the proof and the fruit of their salvation and how the evidence of their, their faith, their new faith, had gone out. And so that's really, really encouraging. Uh, verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, all throughout the Mediterranean region. People came to understand and know who exactly they were and came to know about their faith. The second thing that Paul has thoughts about is their current spiritual suffering. He recognizes their current suffering, and that's in the second half of chapter 2. If you look down in chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul writes, You also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. Paul knows that there are some Jews there who are persecuting them. Uh, because these Jews don't understand the transition from the Old Testament law to the New Testament church. And Paul has a great deal of recognition for their, 
their current suffering. And then the third thing that I wanted to point out to you is at the beginning of chapter 3, pretty much the whole chapter, I guess, um, Paul is comforted over Timothy's report of how it is that they're doing. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us good news of your faith and love. So Paul recognizes that there is an obvious fruit to their salvation. They have current suffering, but they are doing very, very well in light of that. And he's comforted by that. This is a young church with a genuine gospel reputation. Uh, They're living in much tribulation and trial, but they are persevering. This is a church that's doing really, really well. So Paul has... Lots of instructions for them starting in chapter 4 because this is a new church. They, they don't know how to, to live in Christ. They are new. And so um, he writes to them and he addresses many things. At the beginning of chapter 4 in verses 3 through 8, he talks about purity. He talks about how to be in a relationship, a pure relationship with a member of the opposite sex. He talks about disciplined living in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I'll read verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you to do. He had to give them instructions on how to use their time well, and we'll see why. He talks about the rapture at the end of chapter Uh, 4. This was a new church, and they understood that Jesus was coming again, but they didn't know a lot of details about that, so he provides that for them, and he speaks to them about the rapture. There was some confusion between the rapture or Jesus returning for his church and the day of the Lord. They didn't quite understand that distinction. So Paul talks about that in the beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 15, he talks about relationships within the church. He starts by talking about how the body should interact with their leadership. He talks about how the, the body should interact with themselves as well. And then he ends the letter by talking about how the body should interact with the Lord in matters of personal holiness in verses 16 through 22. So all of this is new to the church in Thessalonica and all of it was necessary. So here we're going to take a look at four instructions that address the way in which the bodies to interact with one another. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.15 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So let's look at admonish the unruly. So in the midst of suffering, the letter gives us some reason to believe that there were those who were leaving their normal work responsibilities and were waiting for the return of Jesus. They had actually left their work responsibilities. They were under the impression that Jesus was coming very, very soon, so let's stop what we're doing and let's wait for him. And we see that at the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11 in chapter 4. We urge you, brethren, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Paul was giving them instruction when he was with them for three weeks, and he was writing to them, reminding them of this. The ESV actually uses the word um, idle in place of the unruly in chapter 4, verse 15. Admonish the idle or admonish the unruly. The situation may have gotten worse. This was a situation that probably continued after Paul wrote his first letter to them. He writes about it again in the second letter. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, he's talking about the same thing. And he says to them, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life 
That's in verse 6. And in verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined wife, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So this was something which was an ongoing thing. There was an unruliness. So let's talk about what it means to be unruly. The Greek word for unruly describes something that is the opposite of being drawn up or being well arranged. It has its origins in military language. The unruly one has deviated from a prescribed order or rule. He's deviated from a prescribed order or rule. This is a person who's advanced beyond a position of safety because of the deviation they've they've gone into. They're now exposed to a great deal of danger. There's also an inherent characteristic in that kind of person, and that is that they lack the restraint to keep themselves from being unruly. They lack the restraint to keep themselves within that order. They run towards being unruly. And because of this trait, they're not the kind of person who has stumbled into sin. This is a different kind of person. This is a person whose pattern of life is to wander outside of the authority that's placed over them. They don't enjoy being ruled. So the pattern of their life is to step outside of that rule. The natural course of their mind is to retain freedom in any way possible. In at least one area of their life, living under the authority of another is is not even a thought or a consideration to them. Um, It's just not part of their natural thinking of how they are. They don't consider themselves to be one who is under the rule of another. As an example, you know when your child gets sick and you go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist gives you a medication and that medication has a protocol to it um, with a dosage and an interval at which you take the medication. That's the idea. There is, a, there is a rule here. There is an order that you stay inside of and the medication is effective and it's very helpful. But the unruly one is the one who ignores the protocol. They step outside of the protocol and they apply the medication in any way they choose. That's the unruly one. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. They have no thoughts of staying within the order that God has prescribed for them. And so what this person needs more than anything else is for those thoughts to be put into them because those thoughts are lacking in them. And that's what the word admonishment is. The word admonish means to place a warning into the mind. You're placing a warning into the mind of the one who's unruly. The reason you're doing that is because it's not in their mind in the first place. Notice the direction here. This is something that's coming outside of the person and being put into the person because it's lacking in them. Just like in the same way that a person who's using medication needs to have that protocol given to them. It needs to be handed to them by the pharmacist. We need to take the words of wisdom and words of warning and place them in the mind of the one who's unruly. And so what's being placed in the mind is a warning that's based on a doctrinal or a spiritual substance. A warning that has a doctrine or a spiritual substance or foundation to it. This is not a a soft, half-hearted plea. This is not an encouragement. This is a stern warning. It's an exhortation to a person. It's a sharp reproof that's designed to rescue the one who has stepped outside of the order that God has prescribed for their life. 
the one admonishing, the one warning, the one who's placing the warning in their mind is saying, I know you, and I know that right now you need this. You really, really need this, and I love you, and I'm coming to you as your sister in Christ, and I need you to listen to me, and you need to be listening yourself. This is extremely sober. This is extremely serious. I'm not offering a bit of advice. I'm not I'm tossing something at you. I'm placing something in your mind that, that appears to me to be missing. And it's a, a reproof that aims to do two things. The first is that it shows them their sin. And the second, that it points them to a clear path of repentance. And so I spent a lot of time in the last year since I gave this message thinking about some of the questions that a person might have. And they might say, well, I don't know how to recognize what the unruly one looks like. They don't carry a sign that says, hi, I'm unruly. So how do I, how do I know what they look like? So I thought I'd, I'd give some examples, and we can talk about these some more at the end. By the way, there's going to be a 15, 20, 30-minute Q&A at the end if we want to talk about it some more. So if you have some questions, be holding those, and we can talk those through. Here's some examples. Um, here's a husband who consistently complains about his um, workplace. He's consistently complaining about the tasks that are expected of him at work. Um, this is unruly because God's design for him is for the man to work diligently and to work joyfully. So when a man thinks that he has the place and the privilege and the freedom to consistently complain about the lot that the Lord has given to him in his work. Um, this man is an unruly man because God has commanded us to be joyful and to work unto him regardless of what the circumstance is like. Another example is a wife who strains against God's design for her husband's leadership in their marriage. She's straining against it. She, With everything in her, she wants to lead and she attempts to lead in the marriage in the way that God designed the man to lead in the marriage. That's unruly because at its root, it fights against God's design for spiritual equality but role distinction. Husband and wife have a spiritual equality before the Lord, but they have distinct roles before the Lord as well. And you have a wife that is constantly striving to assume the leadership role. That's unruly. It may be the case that the husband needs help leading. That's a separate issue. But when you have a woman who desires to constantly lead, um, that's unruly. It could be a friend who continues to overstep biblical boundaries in an area of freedom. Just think of any area of freedom that you want. And if you have one who, when you consistently go to them, they just continually, regularly, out of the habit of who they are, step into um, beyond biblical boundaries in that area of freedom. That's an unruly person. They don't want to be ruled by God's design or how to conduct himself in that area of freedom. It could be a sheep in the body who is consistently difficult to shepherd. They're just always difficult to shepherd. This is the one whose nature is so unteachable that the elder's service over that one becomes a grief and a hardship to them. It's the kind of man that's described in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. He's an unruly man because he's He's striving not to submit to the leadership that the Lord has placed over him. The focus here is on the kind of person that one is who will not be ruled. 
And this is a hard issue. It's, it's an issue in which a person does not want to be ruled, and it's an issue that resides within their heart. And oftentimes it has different manifestations on the outside. It, it might look differently, whatever the circumstance is. It might look even different if you're thinking about a child. But with all of them, the, the hard issue is that they don't want to be ruled, at least in one area of their life. So let's talk for a minute about what unruliness is not. Let's make sure that we provide some distinction and clarity on what unruliness is not. This is not somebody who's demonstrated a pattern of obedience in an area for a long, long time, and they've been doing well. They're a sinner, but they've been doing well. They're walking well, and they stumble recently. Maybe they stumble really, really badly. That's not an unruly person. They made a poor choice. Um, They didn't pray something through. They didn't seek counsel. It's not the evidence of their life. It's not the pattern of their life. That's not an unruly one. There's a different response that's needed for that person. You come to them with something different than placing a warning in their mind. That knowledge is probably already in their mind as a pattern of who they are, but they made some really poor choices one day. That person does need to be Reminded that if this pattern continues, it might turn into unruliness. Persistent sin always has at its root some sense of unruliness. So let's think about how we admonish the one. And let's not lose sight of the fact that we're dealing with the body of Christ here. We're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be admonished. And the intent here is to restore the unruly one so they can be once again used as a functional part of the body of Christ. Let's remember that. The idea here is not to unload an admonishment. The idea is to restore the one who needs the admonishment. So i got six principles, and I know that there's not a lot of room on your sheet. Um, Anyway, I'll, I'll mention them for you. First, remember who you were before God saved you. Remember who you were. Um, You have the privilege of going to them only because God chose you to rescue you from your sin. Jot down this verse, Ephesians Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. Just think about this. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the the power of the prince of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all lived in the lusts of our flesh and we indulged the desires of our flesh and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. Remember that. That puts you in a place of humility before you go to somebody. And that humility is so winsome to the person that you go to. So remember who you were before God saved you. Examine yourself before you go to them. Galatians 6.1. Before you go to anybody with anything, read Galatians 6.1. Or remember Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Um. Brethren, even if any one of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Each one is looking at yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So examine yourself. Okay? And the third is embrace gentleness. You'll notice in that passage that there's a gentleness that we need to use. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Always use gentleness when you go to somebody, even when their unruliness is so obvious. It's so blatant. Everybody knows it and everybody sees it. God's instructions to us are come to them with gentleness. 
fourth principle is point them to their own heart. Help them understand their own heart in all of this. It's not about the outward behavior. Unruliness is going to manifest itself somehow with an outward behavior, but the issue is their heart. An example of that is in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and they brought some of the proceeds of that property, of that sale, to the church. But they over-advertised what it was that they were bringing. And when Peter addresses Ananias with that, he says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit of God? It starts in your heart. It's not the outer issue, really. What it is, is is there something in your heart? So you always want to point the unruly one to their own heart. Consider your heart and what it is that's causing you to manifest unruliness in this outward way. Fifth, you really want to help them understand biblical repentance. Someone says, okay, I'm, I'm unruly. And if someone says that, you're, you're getting somewhere. It's really, really good. If they'll at least agree with you. But when they look at you and they say, well, now what? Um, God actually has prepared us for that. He's given us 2 Corinthians 7, verses 11 and 12, where the earmarks of biblical repentance are set out. Um, in verse 11, he says, this is what biblical repentance looks like. You're earnest in the following areas. You vindicate yourself. You say, okay, from the point that you came to me till some point in the future, I'm actually demonstrating a change here. The unruliness is not present in my life. You don't see it. There's an indignation over being an unruly one that you look at your life and you say, you know, I can't believe what I did. I'm disgusted with what I did. I have a genuine, holy anger at myself and how I represented the gospel to the world around me how I represented the church to the world around me. I'm indignant over that. Another characteristic that's in that passage is that you have a reverence for God, a fear of, a holy fear of God. It's not being afraid of him punishing you. It's the kind of fear you have when you're very near to something that's very powerful and very different from you. Sort of like standing very near to a tiger at the zoo. You're aware of how powerful he is because of how close you are to him. So the one who's repenting is near to the Lord and they're aware of his holiness. There's a longing in that person's life to restore the kind of relationship with the Lord they had before their unruliness started to exhibit itself. And there's a zeal in their pursuit of a behavior that's the opposite of unruly. They actually exert some effort at being something other than unruly. They adopt a servant mindset in increasing areas of their life a submissive mindset in increasing areas of their life. And lastly, there's an avenging of wrong. If your unruliness has, or if your friend's unruliness has cost somebody, the one who's repentant from their unruliness makes that right. If there was some cost that was incurred, if there was some issue that they had to experience, you make that right. You take that upon yourself. And there's no sense in which you're hiding from owning that. You're upfront with it. You say, I did that. That was on me. I'm going to make that right. So those are six ways that you can help a person understand what biblical repentance is. 2 Corinthians 7, 11. And the last thing we want to do when we're going to somebody who's, who's unruly is we want to be clear about God's grace in the gospel. Um, The gospel has a huge place in a person's repentance. And we want to help them see that. And 
One of the best places to go is Romans chapter 6. Say to your friend, would you read Romans 6 with me? There are some verses here that are very, very, very helpful. Verses 8 through 11. Let me just read those. And imagine yourself sitting next to somebody and you're reading this passage to the unruly one. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Explain to your friend that, that when Christ was, was risen from the dead, when he was raised from the dead, he did something. Um, as Christ was raised from the dead, he broke the power of death. And he overcame the thing that caused that death, which is sin. So he conquered that as well. What he did was he conquered the rule that sin has in that person's life. So you explain to your friend, you no longer are bound to this unruliness the way that you were before you came to Christ. You are no longer held to this. You're no longer forced to do this. You're in unruliness because you choose it. This is a matter of your choice. This is a matter of course. It may have been in place for so long that they don't notice it. You go backwards in Romans 6 to verse 4. This is my favorite verse in the whole chapter. It says, Therefore we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as he was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he purchased for us the ability to walk in newness of life. So if you go to somebody with something that's been in place in their life for a long, long time, and they say, I've been doing this forever, I don't even think about it when I'm doing it. I realize it way later. You tell them, do you know that what was purchased for you was the ability to actually walk in an unruly, not an unruly manner of life? When Christ was raised from the dead, he purchased for you the ability to love being ruled by the authority that God put over you. So we want to make sure we we have those things in place. One of the things I thought about as I was preparing this over the course of the last year was, what does a wife do if the unruly one is her husband? How do you admonish the one who has authority over you as your head? Because he does have authority over you. There's a spiritual equality, but a role distinction. He's the leader, you're the follower. There's different commands, there's different roles that, that every husband and wife are to play in the marriage. And how do you admonish the one who's over you? Got some principles here. Um, not going to talk about specifics. We can do that afterwards. But first, pray before you do anything. It is so easy to go to someone so quickly. Stop and pray. James tells us that um, we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. When we're listening and when we're observing, uh, we need to retreat into prayer and pray and then come forward with something that's going to more likely be from the Lord. So pray. Go to him within your role. Go to him and tell you, God made me your helper suitable. Genesis chapter 2. That was his design for me. That is what God, that's the role he placed me into. And part of his design in bringing us into this marriage that we would speak into one another's lives. And I'm speaking to you as your helper suitable and I see something in you that maybe everybody else doesn't see because I live right next to you. I sleep next to you, I eat next to you, I ride in the car next to you in a way that nobody else does, and I see something. So stay within your role. 
there's a very good way, a very powerful, very effective way to go to someone who's in authority over you, even if you're within your role. So stay within your role. Keep yourself respectful. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won by a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste here means being pure from fault. Respectful means a sober acknowledgement of his position over you as your husband. So keep yourself respectful. Help him see that this is part of how the body cares for itself. When a believing wife goes to a believing husband, she can bring with her Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. This is a great verse. You read the beginning of the verse up until the, the first comma in the NAS, and then you read the end of the verse after the last comma, and it says, the whole body causes the growth of the body. You say to your husband, honey, I love you. The body causes the growth of the body, and this is how it does it. And you read the middle of the verse. Every body, piece of the body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. You say, I want to work properly. I want to work within the function and the role that God designed for me to be in, not only as your wife, but as your sister in Christ. This is really, really hard for me to do, and I need his grace to do this. But help him see that this is God's design. This is God's means of grace for, for how we care for one another. You can appeal to him on the basis of your unity as a married couple. Jot down this verse, Ephesians 5.25. This is instruction to husbands. It's really, really helpful that we see something important here. I think all wives know this verse. They know it well. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Ephesians 5.28. Love their wives as their own bodies. This speaks to how the husband is to love his wife. And it's very important that we understand this. A husband is to love his wife, not in the same way that he loves himself, saying, if I like the temperature at 77 degrees, I'll let my wife set the temp at 77 degrees. That's not what's talking about here. It's talking about a oneness. It's saying husbands need to love their wives because they're already one. You're loving the same entity. And so you go to your husband and you say, your unruliness doesn't only affect you, it affects us because we're one. We're actually one. So this extends much farther than you think it does because we are one. We, we became one when you put this ring on my finger. So if, if appealing to him proves to be unfruitful or unproductive, there are some places to warn him, and you want to go to Proverbs. Proverbs is so helpful when it relates to the person who, who does not want to be counseled, the one who does not want to take a word. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, the people fail, but in the abundance of counselors there is victory. You need to understand if you don't talk to somebody about your unruliness, there is failure. There is failure ahead for you. And there's failure ahead for us because we're one. That's Proverbs 11:14, chapter 12, verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. 
God has one description for the person who wants to shut out the counsel of others. It's a small word, but it's a significant word. That is, God says that man is a fool. And so the idea here is not to point your finger at him and say you're a fool. The idea is to say you do not want to be one that God calls a fool. So would you listen with me? Can we walk together? Can we go see somebody together? Let's do this together. I love you. So that's how we admonish the unruly. And as we do that, just think about the effect on the body of Christ if we don't admonish the unruly. Just think about what happens. And the analogy there would be what happened if you had a house full of sick people you went down to the pharmacist and you got the right medications. You brought all the medications home and you just dispensed them however you felt. Would those kids get better? No. Same thing is true about the church. If you allow somebody to extend outside of the lines that God has given for them in whatever station and in whatever season they are, they will continue and continue and continue in that. And the body will be harmed by that. So be encouraged to go to your friend when you see it, be encouraged to go to them with gentleness, go prayerfully, go thoughtfully, go with kindness. But admonish the unruly one because they need it and the body needs it. Okay, so that's the unruly one. Now we're going to talk about the faint-hearted one. We'll talk about the faint-hearted and then we'll talk about the weak. So the faint-hearted one is uh, one that in the Greek, it's a compound word. It's two words that are put together. And um, it's one who has a small soul. The faint-hearted one is one with a small soul. And this is the only instance, the only use of this word in the New Testament. But it only has to be used once for us to understand that it's real. This person is the opposite of somebody who's assertive who's confident, who doesn't really fear hardship or difficulty. They're ready to take on any challenge. Um, this is the opposite of a person who has seen a steady stream of success in their life. seems like as far back as they look over their shoulder, things have gone very well, at least outwardly. Things seem to be in their wheelhouse, and it's just working really well. Um, you look at them from a distance, and everything's going great. Um, they're seeing success in their battle with sin. Things are going well at work. Their parenting is on track. Oh, that's always a good one. Their homeschooling is going well. They're seeing success in all kinds of ways, and they, they just appear to be on top of it. The faint-hearted one is the opposite of that person. It's the one who becomes increasingly defeated or subdued as a difficult situation remains unchanged, and they're in the middle of it. And they keep waiting for it to change, but it doesn't. Some examples, someone who is in a position at work where they could advance if they could pass a particular certification test. So they take the test, and they take the test, and they take the test, and they never seem to pass. That person could be faint-hearted. They might have a little soul over the fact that they've prepared just like everybody else, and everybody else takes the test, and they pass, and they move on, and they get their license or whatever, and they can go do their thing. Um, I know someone who took the bar four times and never passed it. I know someone who took the practicing engineer test three times and never passed it. That person could get faint-hearted. Here's another example. 
um, if there is a significant area of sin between a husband and a wife. And the offending spouse goes to the one that they offended, whichever way it is. The one who did the offending goes to the other and seeks reconciliation. They seek restoration. They seek to be restored in their relationship. And the one who was offended is unwilling to reconcile with them, no matter how often and how humble and how persistently and how carefully and how prayerfully the other one comes to them. That other one could be very, very faint-hearted over time, thinking, what do I have to do? Every other area of their life might be fine, but they truly want to reconcile, and the other has no interest. When they themselves were the one who, who did the sin, who took the occasion to sin. That could make a person very faint-hearted. Another opportunity might be if you have a loved one in your family who requires a lot of care and a lot of help. They aren't necessarily the kind of person who's very appreciative of your help, but they definitely need that help. And they make it difficult for you to help them. And you have to endure and endure and endure. It just becomes more and more difficult. There's nothing preventing you there's nothing keeping you from providing that help you always will but it's likely it's probable it's possible for a person to become faint-hearted in that again i have to go and minister aid and care to the one who's so unreceptive to my help so unappreciative the thessalonians were people who were faint-hearted and they were small-souled because they were suffering persecution from the jews Let me read chapter 2, verse 14 again. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You became just like us. We were persecuted. And this is the way in which you became imitators of us. You endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as we did. So you were just like us. And it doesn't look like there's any change in sight because the Jews are insistent on maintaining the grip that they had on their religious authority and their religious rule. They could see this church rising up and they didn't know what to do with it and they wanted with everything in them to get rid of it so the persecution wasn't going to go away. And so it would become very easy to be faint-hearted against that. There's the use of the word endured here. Um, When Paul writes, he uses that word for a reason. That's probably because he knows that it's going to be a prolonged, it already has been a prolonged period of suffering and probably will continue to be one. So Paul sensed that they may be faint-hearted, and that's why he sent Timothy to them. And so in chapter 3, he says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you. There's the word, encourage. So the word encourage here is another compound word in the Greek, and it means... Um, soothing speech. So to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. It's soothing speech from someone who is near you. Comforting words from close proximity. That's how you encourage. That's what Paul was thinking of. That's what was in his mind when he says encourage. Bring comforting words from up close. A couple of observations about encouragement. First, Effective encouragement comes from the one who is near you. It doesn't come from the one who keeps away from you. It comes from the one who's near you. A friend who is close beside, a friend who draws near, is one who is willing to leave their own comfort zone 
one who is leaving, willing to lead their own lifestyle, one who is willing to lead their own system that's working well for them in order to care for you. They're not at all bothered by the discomfort or the difficulty that it would be to serve you. Not at all bothered by any differences that exist between you and them, whether they're differences in where you live or the way that you parent or what you wear or how you talk or anything else. They're one who wants to be near to you and they want to offer comforting words to you. They're not bothered by the difficulty that it is to minister to somebody. We want to acknowledge that it is difficult to serve someone and help someone. It is costly. Um, but the one who is an encouraging one is one who, for whom that's not an obstacle. So we can ask ourselves a couple of questions. Do I have any bias against a circumstance that would curtail my willingness or my ability to encourage? Are there things that just repulse me that shouldn't? Things that turn me away from somebody or turn me off towards them that shouldn't? Second thing is, have I set a level of activity in my life that it would make it difficult for me to actually encourage somebody? If I maxed out my schedule to the extent that I don't have the, the opportunity to room and the room to move and come encourage them, do I have no margin in my life? One of the things I've, I've learned as I look at my life today versus my life 25 years ago is I understand the need for margin because things come up So examine your life and consider whether or not you have the opportunity even to encourage somebody. And sometimes it's not a very costly thing to do. Sometimes people are blessed by a text. They're blessed by something else. They're blessed by you liking their post on Facebook. We recognize that those things are there. Paul is writing to people who, um, when they go encourage somebody, it's a significant effort. It's very significant. These are people that are persecuted for what they believe. And it's costly to encourage the one who's being persecuted. The second thing that you need to make sure that you do and understand about this is that effective encouragement comes from somebody who actually has a comforting message to bring. You can get near to somebody and you can say lots of things, but if you don't have a comforting message, you're not encouraging somebody because the word encourage means come up close and provide a comforting message. It's a message that does two things. First, it acknowledges their situation. I understand that you're faint-hearted. I can see that. And I am sorry. I acknowledge this is hard. I wish this weren't the case for you. I wish that you were someplace else in some other season. But I acknowledge this, and it's hard. I can see that. This would weary me as well if I was in your shoes. So acknowledge it. But don't leave it there. Secondly, bring the hope and the gospel to that person. Encouraging your friend with the gospel truth um, resets their perspective. And this is so important because so often when we're in something that, that persists for a long time, that becomes the new normal for us sometimes. Even though we know the truth and we believe the truth about God's sovereignty and his kindness and his goodness, his grace and everything else, an ongoing thing can tend to wear you down. And so the gospel is something that reminds a person and resets their perspective on what they need to have in front of them. God's choice of them. Before the foundations of the earth, God chose you 
that you would be holy and you would be blameless before him, even when you're in this trial. He chose you. Don't forget that Christ was suffering on a cross for three or four hours, enduring all of God's wrath against you. And you're experiencing the effects of that now. You're walking in newness of life. Don't forget that. Ephesians chapter 1 is so good, it tells us that God lavishes his grace upon us. God has a store of grace for each one of us to live in that is abundant, that's exceeding. It exceeds every measure that we would need. And God has that grace. There's not as if God is running out of grace for us to use in this circumstance. He's lavished grace on us that's more than we could need. So keep the gospel in front of them and ask yourself, do I know the gospel well enough? Do I have a a good enough grasp on the gospel that I can conversationally speak it in a way that's encouraging to my sister, that it doesn't reek of theological arrogance or insensitivity? Can I speak the gospel truth in a way that's encouraging and, and winsome and easy to be received? Do I encourage myself regularly with the gospel as it relates to my situation? Don't start doing something for somebody else that you're not already doing for yourself. That's a little disingenuous. You want to come to them with who you are as a person for something that's already been been significant in your life. To do that, it, it needs to be part of your thought process. It needs to be part of your prayer life, comforting yourself with gospel truth as you're praying for yourself and your family and your circumstance, your roommates, whatever else it is. Do I share with others, whether it's in small group or my discussion group here, how it is that the gospel is encouraging me, how it is that the truth of the gospel helps me as I I correct my kid for the 19th time today on the same thing. If you look at the, the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul encourages them with two things. He encourages them with their present identity in Christ and he encourages them with their future place in Christ. I'll just mention a couple of references and won't go into great detail. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 3. Paul says, I'm going to encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. You're actually encouraged by your faith. The encouragement here comes from reminding them of their identity in Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Their present condition is God has chosen you for salvation. The soothing message here has two parts. You're beloved. You're very near and precious to the Lord. Your salvation is something that God has been very, very thoughtful about since before he said light come into existence. And before he separated light from darkness and called one day and the other one night, he already knew about your salvation. He had made plans for it. Um, he had determined that he would come into this world that he would create and, and pour his own anger against you for what you would do onto his son. Encourage them with their future position in Christ. We see that in the first letter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Just as we know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice that the encouragement points to a future hope. 
their thinking is reoriented to remember the perspective of this life in the context of all of eternity. Always point your friend to the future. Um, Remember where you're going. Remember what has been done for you so that you can get to where you're going. Notice how it is that a person arrives at that future place. This is a personal, effectual call by none other than the creator of the universe, the one who created everything, personally called you. He sought you out and and gave an effectual call that would draw you to himself. This is no mass email or group text message. This is an individual, personal call to a person. I want you to be with me, and I'm going to draw you to myself. I'm going to drag you to myself when you're running away from me. It's a God's personal invasion into your life, an intrusion into your life, so that he could be your master. That is encouraging, especially if you help them understand how badly they were running from God when he chose them and when he changed them. One more word of encouragement comes at the end of chapter 3 in the first letter. Um, Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints is the return of Jesus to set up his 1,000-year rule and reign on this earth. He's coming with all of his saints. That's all of us to set up his rule on this earth, and we will rule with him. Everything is made right. Nothing is wrong. Everything is just. Nothing is unjust. Everything is righteous. Nothing is unrighteous. Nothing is painful. How encouraging is that? We have that to look forward to. And we have his grace to sustain us until we get to that place. Just a short story. I remember once that someone came to me right when I first became an elder, and they said, what's your position on the end times? And I said, I don't have one. Let me get one. So I spent two years examining the Old and the New Testament to have a position on on the end times. And I came up with one, and it happened to be the same place that everybody else on the elder board was. And that was good. But the thing that surprised me and astounded me as I, I did that exercise, which I'm glad I did, was that I was surprised at how many times um, the discussion of the end times and the treatment of the end times, the net effect and the net result is, you be encouraged by this today. All of this stuff is happening. It's going to happen in the future. And because of what is going to happen, because I'm so clear and so specific about how this is going to take place, you can be comforted right now in your situation. So encourage someone in their their present position in Christ and encourage them in their future realities as well. Okay. Okay. So how can I tell if my sister is faint-hearted? Remember, they have a small soul. That's the main thing here. The main thing here is that they have a small soul. That's the prominent characteristic. Um, There's a good chance that they have a good understanding of God's choice to use trials as a thing by which a person becomes mature and complete. There's a good chance for that. Um, But the main thing is that they have a small soul. And in many cases, your comforting words are things that they already know. They already know this. But the process of actually hearing what you know you need is true is what's actually helpful to you. They're one who knows this. And they've probably been in this situation for a while. So know your friends well. Know what they're doing. 
just keep in mind if something has been on their plate for a while that my friend might actually be coming faint-hearted. We're supposed to encourage the faint-hearted. Do you see the, the danger in encouraging the unruly one? When you have someone who's unruly, um, you want to place a warning in their mind. They don't need an encouragement. The last thing they need is to be encouraged with what they're already doing. The encouragement is for the one who's faint-hearted because he needs courage. The unruly doesn't need courage for where he is. One other thing um, that I thought about here is there's a possibility that the same situation might make one faint-hearted and another one weak. And we'll get to the weak here in just a second. But it's absolutely true that a prolonged difficult situation may cause somebody who understands God's character to become faint-hearted. Um, but to another who's lacking in, in understanding and they have a, a weaker spiritual foundation underneath them, uh, they might just end up being more weak. So we'll talk about that a little bit. So let's talk about the weak. What time do I have to go till, Chris? It's, it's 10.20. What time do I have till? Okay. All right. Got a couple more pages to go. Helping the weak. Okay, so literally the weak one is the one who is lacking in strength. Nothing earth-shattering there. They're lacking in strength. And the, mo- the main focus here is not that there's a physical weakness. That's not the main idea. What's in view here is that this is somebody who lacks spiritual strength. This is a person who's easily misled. They lack discernment. They regularly demonstrate poor judgment. They're not inclined to use scripture as they think through decisions that they need to make. This person often has a worldview that's not informed by scripture. When they look at things in the world, they're not looking at it through a biblical lens. They're looking at it through some other lens. This is a person who can be gripped by fear as they view a situation that's not being informed by a biblical worldview. And this is a person who could fall into patterns of sin very easily because um, they're lacking in a biblical foundation, a strong biblical foundation. So this is a person who does not generally have a strong grasp in Scripture. And because of that, it, it, it has a great effect on the way that they see things, It has a great effect on the way that they respond to things, primarily because of a weak view and a weak understanding, a weak foundation in God's word. So what this person needs is help, and they need help that's primarily of a spiritual kind. They need help in using scripture to lead their thinking and their perspective and their worldview. So literally, to help is to bring necessary aid to a person to bring necessary aid. It's necessary because it's not there. And a person needs that in order to see their situations rightly. Some of the Thessalonians were weak in their understanding of the return of Christ. They thought that Christ's return was imminent. It was literally going to happen any day. So this led some of them to make very poorly informed decisions about what they should do with their time. I'm going to quit work, and I'm going to wait for Jesus to return. That's an example of their weakness. Paul had to write to them and exhort them to keep working, work hard, be diligent. If you don't work, you won't eat. You need to keep working. All of that was based on their their poor understanding of when Christ was coming back. 
and how to deal with the idea and how to think rightly about the fact that Christ is coming back. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands. Keep working. Don't put it in neutral and wait for Jesus to, to come back. Because in the second letter, he writes to them, and by that time, they had begun acting like busybodies. Their idleness had turned itself into sinfulness. They were busybodies. So Paul helps them with really clear teaching regarding the return of Jesus. He said, you know, the return of Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. And uh, when he returns, you won't be expecting it. And so he provides that for them in the beginning of chapter 5. And he says, In the times and the epics, brethren, as to those, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they, the ungodly, are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. They will not escape. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. So he provides clear teaching in an area of weakness and understanding for them. So Paul's help comes in two parts. In this particular situation, he talks about um, when Christ is going to come back. He, he informs them of what it is going to be. It's going to come at a time like a thief in the night. It's going to come when you don't expect it. And secondly, because of that, you need to build one another up. You need to keep building one another up. You need to all strive to be better grounded in the word. And so his help addressed a deficit in their understanding regarding the time frame of Christ's return so that they would be able to live more God-glorifying lives. They wouldn't be sitting around like busybodies. So biblical help is often aimed at strengthening the brother or the sister's biblical foundation, strengthening their understanding of the word, pointing them back to the word. Which, by the way, is why we always talk about reading plans. We always talk about your prayer life and core questions in small groups. Tell us what you're reading. Tell us what you're praying about. That's not to mark a checkbox so we know who's doing whatever every day. It's because the, the, the strength that anyone has is a function of their, their relationship with the Lord and the time they spend alone with him in his word and in prayer. So this means that we don't always help in the way that's most obvious. A person might have a real physical need that comes about because of a weakness in their understanding of Scripture. They might have a real outward need. And that need does need to be addressed. But the true help comes in addressing what's underneath that. Um, and that is correcting the unbiblical thinking that's in place. So, for example, when I was a young Christian, um, I used to think the trials were God's way of punishing me. I used to think, I did X, so my consequence is Y. I must have done something, because now I'm in a bad situation. I really didn't understand that. It wasn't informed very well by Scripture. A good brother took me to James chapter 1, and he helped me understand that the trials are God's chosen instrument for helping us grow in our maturity and our completeness. And that was world-changing for me, helping to understand that this is part of God's chosen means to help me grow. It's not because I stepped out of line or did something wrong, which I probably did. But I really, really needed that. Because when difficult times would come, I would look at myself and I'd say, well, what did I do wrong? I wasn't looking at myself saying, how do I need to grow? Those are two very, very different things. And I was blessed by that. Someone took me aside and they told me, your thinking is broken here. And I was so glad. 
so helped by that. So a couple of questions. Am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak? When they make comments about their time or their money situation or their parenting or something else, do I see the the underlying weakness that's there? Do I see what they're not understanding rightly about God's word? Do I understand their root need, where it is that they really need to grow in their understanding? Can somebody be faint-hearted and weak at the same time? Yeah, that's possible for someone to be faint-hearted and weak at the same time. If somebody has a weakness that leads them to make very, very poor decisions, and some of those decisions have very long-lasting implications, the decision itself could start and could have its root, its origin, in a weakness. But because the implication is so long-lasting, they might actually become faint-hearted as they make their way out of that and they walk the long road of the consequence of that. And if somebody had a, a poor understanding of the fact that resources belong to the Lord and not to us, that money is God's and he's entrusted to us, that money if someone doesn't understand that and they, they're not careful when they enter into debt agreements or they enter into purchase agreements with payments over time and they made that decision out of a, a point of biblical weakness, they didn't seek counsel, they didn't seek God's word, they didn't pray, they didn't examine what scripture has to say, um, they could make a decision that has very, very long-standing consequences to it. And the length and the duration of those consequences are, are things that might cause one to become faint-hearted. That's one example that I thought about in how a person who might become faint-hearted over being weak, that has its start and its origin in being weak. Probably there is place for the one who's um, faint-hearted to become weak, but the weakness there might be more of a physical weakness you're serving and you're serving and you're serving and it's costing and it's costing and it's costing and it's costing you. You love to do it, you want to do it, you keep doing it, but it takes its toll and you become physically weak. It's a little less unlikely that you become spiritually weak and you lose your understanding of the biblical principles behind everything. Um, but I can see how a person who's faint-hearted uh, might become weak um, simply because of the the weight of what it is that they're in over a period of time, the physical weight of it. So the last instruction is to be patient with everybody. Um, if you look at your own life, you know that it takes a long time to walk away from patterns of sin that have been there for a while. So when you go to a sister and you say, I see something in you, um, be willing to walk with them. To be patient is to be long-tempered to refuse to retaliate with anger because of the way that you think about them and because of your heart towards them. So to be patient is to be one who holds back from, from a response that your flesh wants to give to them as you wait for them. And sometimes you're going to go to someone, you're going to exhort the, the unruly, you're going to admonish the unruly again and again and again. And being patient is the one who walks with them in it. And maybe your, your exhortations change in their tone and their way and their message over time, but you're still exhorting them. You're still trying to place a warning in their mind. Persevere with them. If you have one who's, who's faint-hearted, 
and their situation doesn't change. Be patient with them in their faint-heartedness. They need encouragement. They need to have one walk beside them. They need someone holding their hand a lot. As long as their situation is in place, that's as long as God has determined that that will be in place. And, And his mechanism is to use the body of Christ to assist that person in that and to exalt himself as that happens. And when someone is weak and you're sharing biblical truth with them and they just don't get it the first time you tell them or the second time or the third time and when you talk with them and it appears that they're not even listening, you still need to help them. You need to still speak biblical truth to them. You never know when the Lord is going to help them see the light. Just like with your young kids, you want to speak the biblical truth to them at all times because you you really don't know at what point they're going to start listening. So we want to be patient with everyone. And the heart of the elders in all of this is that um, Grace Bible Church would be a strong church. It's a strong church when men and women are in one another's lives and they're speaking to one another, they're speaking words of encouragement, they're speaking words of exhortation, they're speaking words of truth. Okay.